This is the this test. Is the Yo, test. one, two, one, two. What the people in the place to be? We are the stars from Daily City. This is the this test. Is the test. I'm your MC, Mini B. And now, I'd like to present to you our own Imagine 8 Super Mix. Check this out. Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It's election day, and uh, me and my guests both decided that we should just go ahead and record this because uh, it's, you know, I don't know, it's a good distraction so that we're not sitting watching cable news all day. Yep. He's somebody that I was very excited to have on. Honestly, when we were first thinking about the show, uh, me, Tammy, and Andy, we were putting out people who we wanted to talk to, and, you know, this guy was top of my list uh just because of the interesting things that he's written you know a lot of the some of the things that i agree with some things i don't agree with and that's why i thought it'd be totally interesting i'm excited to have him on uh his name is oliver wong he is a professor of sociology at cal state long beach he has a podcast called heat rocks that you should subscribe to and listen to and today we're going to be talking about his book legions of boom which is about mobile dj culture in uh the bay area and sort of the Filipino American community and, you know, what came out of it. Uh, I read the book. I found it totally fascinating, exactly the sort of thing that, you know, you, the listeners, have been asking for in terms of, like, really interesting uh, bro- things that might seem like it's a very specific topic. But, you know, I actually would argue that there's a lot that we can learn from all of this as well. And I'm sure Oliver will help us with that. Oliver, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Jay. Thank you for having me. <laughs> uh, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, how, how are you doing? It's a weird day today, huh? Yeah, you know, I, I have very distinct memories of how I spent the same day in 2016 when uh, I was not on. I, I was much more naive then in terms of thinking, oh, yeah, Hillary's got this locked up. So I'm going into today with far more caution and probably cynicism <laughs> so that I can be hopefully pleasantly surprised. Um, I feel like as someone who grew up, um, being a fan of certain at the time, and this is the emphasis at the time, cursed um, sports teams like the Red Sox because I grew up outside of Mass- outside of Boston as a kid. I'm just used to expecting the worst, and, and somehow f- I th- feel like that same attitude as a form of self protection when it comes to politics also has some utility. So, no man, I'm the opposite. Uh, I like was really really bummed out in 2016 because I thought Trump was going to win, and this time I'm like you know um, betting like money on biden and like, not sweating it at all right so i'm probably wrong the, the the good thing is that i'm usually wrong about everything and so you know there shouldn't be any sort of shouldn't be any sort of solace to you but uh but yeah i i'm, I'm like just expecting it like nine o'clock today pacific yep. time to just be like yeah we did it all right like now what's next you know yeah. but uh hopefully i'm right um yeah so fingers crossed my man um before we get into the book, I want the listeners just to know a little bit about you. Um, yeah, you know, like, tell, tell us a little bit about yourself and your work and, you know, how you, how you got to a place where you're writing a book about, you know, mobile DJ culture 
in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Yeah, sure. So, you know, Jay, as you mentioned, so my, my day job is as a, a sociology professor at California State University, Long Beach, but I also have been writing about music, uh, arts, and culture since the mid-1990s, before I even started graduate school. So I've always thought of my career, or careers, plural, as being um, very much in parallel um, as both a writer and as a, a professor. And and obviously, in a lot of ways, the, each influences the other, even though I think I also try to keep them compartmentalized to a certain extent, um, mostly because I don't want the I don't want bad habits as an academic writer to creep into my my journalistic writing. Sure. Um, uh, and I also just like to have the, the freedom to explore topics from both perspectives or, or I can choose one or the other rather than feeling like um, I have to make everything I'm interested in as a writer some part of my my academic work, which isn't the case. Um, or vice versa, for that matter. So it's I feel very privileged to have the ability to kind of switch between these different modes. Um, and it hopefully each enriches the other in terms of both clarity of writing, which is not something that a lot of academics are known for, but also kind of depth of research, with it, which I think journalists are supposed to do, but it's not always the case. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I like the, the book that you wrote is does show a lot of that where I feel like a lot of it is written in this style where it feels almost novelistic or, or like reportage, like magazine reportage. And then you have points, you know, I find these to be interesting. Um, yeah, I think that I have a very high pain tolerance for academic writing, maybe much more so than most journalists, but you know, when you Probably get into more this, than me, I mean, geez. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe more than you, I think when you get into the sociological analysis of this stuff, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. And, um, yeah, like, uh, well, you know, do you want, do you want to talk a little bit about like, uh, like how did you end up focusing on this well, one subculture? So like yeah. just for the listeners to, to know, and Oliver, please correct me if I'm wrong here, but you know, the book is about essentially a period of time between the late seventies and the early aughts, let's say like the late nineties, where in Filipino American enclaves in the Bay area, which include like Daly city is the most famous one, which is a you know small area in the South part of San Francisco by the beach, also by the zoo, um, like Colma, which is like a, a most famous for like a, uh, cemeteries. Cemetery, the biggest yeah. cemetery I've ever been to. There's also a card room there that I used to go to when I, you know, had a much more troubled youth. And then <laughs> um, Fremont, right, which is across the bay on the East Bay on the south side, like across yeah. sort of from East Palo Alto. Um, and Vallejo, which is to the north of where I am right now in Berkeley, like I don't know, about 40 minutes to the north, um, which is like sort of more of a working class type of town within the Bay Area. And mm -hmm. I think still is. Um yeah. So, and, and it, it's about like, how, how did you end up sort of focusing on the function of mobile DJs within this, within this region? Yeah. So I moved up to the Bay area from Los Angeles in 1990 uh, to start uh, as an undergraduate at UC Berkeley. And um, at, when, during those, those the first four years, I ended up becoming a, a DJ and was already uh, well interested in, in hip hop music and culture uh, and hip-hop DJing in particular. And by probably at the latest, it would have been like 91, 92, Filipino-American DJs out of the Bay Area had already basically taken the hip-hop, scratch DJ, turntablist, whatever you want to call it. They had taken that world by storm, um, most famously by people like DJ Qbert, Mixmaster Mike, who would later become the DJ for the Beastie Boys, DJ Apollo. Um, shortcut, uh, D styles, etc. They 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 formed this crew known as the Invisible Scratch Pickles, which was one of many 
um, turntable of scratch DJ crews in the Bay Area, many of which were staffed, if not exclusively, then predominantly by Filipino-American DJs. And so naturally, uh, at a certain point, when you notice that all of the best DJs in the world seem to be Filipino-American, and a lot of them seem to come from the Bay Area, the question emerges, like, what the hell is that about? And I was just as curious as, as everyone. And even though I'm not Filipino-American, uh, I'm Chinese-American, but simply knowing that there were all these world-class Asian-American DJs out there, it's, you know, you just want to understand the phenomenon. Um, and by the time I was in the, the latter half of the decade, so the mid-late 90s, once I had started uh, in my, my side career in music journalism, I got to interview these guys for different stories. And so naturally, the, one of the questions that would come up is, so how did you get your start? Right. Where did, where did DJ begin, DJing begin for you? And one of the really common, you know, origin stories, if you want to call it, that a lot of them shared is that before they got interested in scratch DJing, they were all part of these mobile DJ groups. So these, you know, for those unfamiliar, a mobile DJ uh, is called such because they move equipment to different gigs. And that can be school dances, it can be weddings, it can be church parties, house parties, garage parties. Anytime you have DJs moving equipment to, to throw a gig, that's a mobile DJ. And so all of these, again, world-class hip-hop DJs had gotten their start, a, you know, in a sense, a generation before doing things like garage parties and school dances and everything else as, as part of this network sprawling network of different mobile DJ crews. And by this point in the mid late nineties, there had been a fair amount that had been written about the history of scratch DJing. Um, so a lot of people interested in that topic, you know, you, you learn about, you know, grand wizard Theodore and you learn all about flash and cool Herc and all these South Bronx DJs. Um, and so there had been some stuff written about that, but there had been almost nothing written that I could find about the mobile DJ scene at least in the Bay Area, that preceded the scratch DJ scene. And as both a person in graduate school in need of a dissertation topic, but also <laughs> as a, a budding music journalist, this light bulb instantly went over my head, which is to say, well, if no one's told this story, there's a great opportunity here. And it's one of those things, and I'm sure, Jay, you've experienced this many times as, as, a, as a much more seasoned journalist than me. When you begin to get an inkling of how good a story can get, and the deeper you dig, the more incredible it feels. That's the exact sen sensation I had. Um, you know, as I began to talk to more and more people, I just was blown away by just the, just the number of stories that came out of this particular scene. So um, Legions of Boom was originally my dissertation topic. Um, and it took me a very long time to adapt that into a, a book version. But that's basically the roots of it is simply to explain like why there's so many world-class Filipino hip-hop DJs. And the only way that answer that is you had to first start the generation before and talk about the mobile DJs that were certainly playing hip-hop, but also playing funk and disco, new yeah. wave, um, a dance style that's known as freestyle that was huge in the 1980s. Um, and, and it was just this kind of amazing story of high school teenagers forming into dozens, if not well over a hundred different crews and really defined Filipino cultural life in a lot of ways for well over a decade. Okay, so let's talk about how they got there then. Because like, you know, the, the, there's this part of your book, the first few chapters of the book that I found totally fascinating and, and interesting. And there's a few things that I wanted to pull out of there that, that we want to talk about. But you write, like in this chapter, I focus on what I see as a three, three of the most significant preconditions of the mobile scene. First would be the aesthetic innovations within DJ culture, culture and music production that helped produce and popularize the nonstop disco mixing styles. Yeah. Second are 
the immigration and settlement patterns of Filipino American families, not just to the Bay Area, but specifically resettlement from urban centers to Bay Area suburbs. Third, I end with a discussion of a smaller case, yet no less significant precondition of the mobile scene, the garage party tradition. We're going to talk about we're going to talk about the resettlement and the garage parties because I found those to be the the, yeah. the technical stuff. I actually found to be interesting as well. But I think that for our listeners, the the, the second and the third will be the most interesting. Sure. But like, so you like how how did Filipino the Filipino Americans who eventually became like the invisible scratch pickles? Who you know, like that's a name that's recognizable to me as somebody who's very into hip hop in the in the late nineties, early aughts. And, you know, you hear these records and you're just like, I don't understand how this is happening. <laughs> sort of a technical wizardry, right? Like yeah, that yeah. really wasn't. Yeah. It was, it's interesting because the separation in my head at the time, and please, you know, like, forgive me if this is an ignorant thing to say, which is just that like, you know, like you listen to something like DJ premier, you listen to these sort of East coast producers and DJs who are, who are scratching. And, you know, it seems much more about like rooted in the song and rooted in the actual, you know, like in the radio stations that are playing this music. But on the West Coast stuff, when I hear Invisible Scratch Pickles, it was just like, it's like, it's just like, you know, it's like listening to Joe Satriani or something like that, where it's like <laughs> this total virtuoso performance. You don't even know if it's good or bad, but you're just like, this is the most impressive thing I've ever heard. I don't know if I need to listen to it again, you know, as a song, but like, holy shit, this person is talented, you know? So like... Um, you know, that, that's, it, it's something that, that, you know, when I was like 20 years old or something like that was certainly interesting to me. It was, I was also interested that they were also all seemed to be Filipino, but mm -hmm. yeah, tell how did, how did these people's families get into the places where they were? Yeah. So the Filipino American pop, population in the Bay area certainly predates the 1965 immigration act. Um, but the real big influx of Filipino American families, um, really begins post-65, and especially post-1972, which is the year that Ferdinand Marcos declares martial law in the Philippines. And this uh, creates uh, an, an exodus of primarily middle-class immigrants who have the means to leave the Philippines. They, become, they begin uh, coming over to the U.S. Um, and again, the, the important backdrop here is because of those changes made in what's known as the Hart-Seller Act of 1965, um, it, it did away with what had been decades and decades of really strict immigration quotas. Um, and so this creates opportunities for tens of thousands of, of people to come over to then and then they can sponsor their um, family members. And you have what's known as this chain migration. And so what happens in the Bay Area in particular is that a lot of them initially settle um, in uh, more dense downtown areas. And partly it's because that's where the historical Filipino towns were, were in the central cities in the same way that like Chinatowns historically have been in the central cities. But much like Chinatowns um, in the course of the 70s and 80s began to move into suburbs like Flushing in New York or Monterey Park in Los Angeles, the Filipino American community, middle specifically middle class immigrants, begin to move from places like South of Market in San Francisco. And that's when they begin moving to Daly City, which is one city south of San Francisco, um, or up to Vallejo in the North Bay or Fremont Union City in the, in yeah. the East Bay or different neighborhoods in San, uh, San Jose in the South Bay. And so you see this kind of secondary migration step, uh, which is very, this. I mean, you see this across many different Asian American communities. So it's not like it's unique to the Filipino American community. Um, but one of the things that I try to emphasize uh, in Legions of Boom is that the mobile DJ phenomenon was really predominantly a middle-class phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. Though, we'll, we'll get we'll yeah, get there. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, right. I, I want to talk a little bit about that uh, 
because that part was the most fascinating to me and I wanted to spend a lot of time sure. on it. But like the precondition is essentially that you have a lot of it. You have some Filipino immigrants living in the Bay Area at that time. They're almost they're all sort of manongs, right, which is sort of these people who they're single men. They're mostly old. They became the actual central focus of the international hotel fight. Right. Yes, um, right. And that, you know, that's something we've talked about on the podcast over and over and over. That might surprise you, but like it's become a recurring theme that we talk about on the show, just as like a example of what polit- Asian American politics could be like. But like, you know, there there used to be most of the Philippine people in the in the Bay Area were sort of these old merchant marines and they had sort of aged out of being merchant marines. But because of restrictive immigration policies, they had to come by themselves. And they're sort of perpetual bachelors in right. that sense. Right. They lived in single residence uh, residency uh, SROs, I don't know, single yeah. resident occupancy hotels exactly. right. all around yeah, downtown area in this place called Manila Town. And then after 1965, you have a middle class that has been imported in directly. Like, was there that much, you know, one of the things that we talk about this podcast quite a bit is the difference between the people who sort of created AAPA, for example, right? And um, the people like uh, like mostly Chinese and Japanese, second, third generation immigrants, right. maybe even longer. And the people, all of us who came post-1965, who are, you know, are, you know, either middle class or upwardly mobile in some sort of way, have no understanding of what that past history was. Yeah. Like, was was that was that also true of the Filipino community? Was like, was there was there very little overlap between these new immigrants who are coming in to work as nurses or coming in to work in sort of, you know, like uh, professional jobs and had a view of upwardly mobile American dream type of stuff and, and the people who are living the SROs? Yeah, I think you would have seen something very similar because I mean, what you're pointing out is that the Asian American movement politics of the late 60s and 70s were really created by um, people who, whose families had already been in the U.S. for at least two or three generations. And ironically, just as this is happening is because of those changes in the immigration laws, you now have this influx of people who, who share the same ethnic background, but they're newly arrived immigrants. They didn't live through sort of the movement politics. And so for them, this you know, they're, they're carrying the politics over from, you know, their home countries, but they're not necessarily invested in kind of this newly emergent pan-ethnic Asian American identity. Um, it would really take for their kids. So people like myself or probably yourself as well for us to get turned on to this, but for people like our parents' generation, and this would also apply within the Filipino American community, um, they would, you, you would have seen, I don't know if a divide is too strong a word, but certainly these are not the same communities, right? One is a, community yeah. of new, recently arrived immigrants and the ones of much more long-standing historical community. Yeah. I just got in my head. I was just like, you know, cause I was thinking about this cause in your book, you mentioned all of this, you mentioned um, the SROs and everything like that. I just imagine these like young uh, Berkeley kids or, you know, like SF state kids going to these like new immigrants and being like, we had to, we got to save this place and ha- let these people live here. And the new immigrants be like, why the fuck would you want to live there? You know, that place looks terrible, you know? So like, um, yeah, that's, it's interesting that that is sort of that this, the, the, the point being the, and the thing that I want to emphasize, I want you to talk a little bit more about what you started to, which is that like, this is not, this is like a second post 1965 phenomenon, right? Like it is not, it is not something that has, roots back into the political activism of the late 60s. Right. It's nothing to do with that. This is sort of like a middle class suburban movement, DJ movement that takes place. Um, why Why do these people, why, why does this group, these people, why does this group of immigrants, you know, Filipino immigrants start moving out to Daly City? Like why, why, why there, why is such a, why is such a big concentration there and in Fremont? 
Yeah. I, I mean, a lot of it has to do partly with um, who's hiring. And so there are a couple of key hospitals and medical centers that are located in Daly City that uh, attracts especially um, immigrants who have nursing backgrounds. Um, and I mean, this is only, this is practically a stereotype, um, you know, amongst Filipino American women in particular, immigrant women, is that a lot of them had nursing backgrounds. And so they were able to come to the U.S. because of preferential um, allowances within the immigration laws. Um, and, it, and a lot of it is, is and you see this through kind of chain migration in many communities, is once you have just enough of a small critical mass of people who come from a particular community in one area, they basically put out the call like, hey, this is some place that we can live and we can buy property and all these things chasing the American dream. Um, and so then their relatives who are coming over to the U.S., they don't know Daly City from wherever else. So it's like, well, if my cousins or my uncles are living there, then that's where I'm going to go as well. And so I think that's partly what helps to explain how Daly City, which used to be like, you know, a very, very white suburb in, in many ways, ends up becoming the, what is what is the the, the uh, nickname, the adobo capital of America, um, mm -hmm. you know, by the time you, you reach maybe the end of the 1980s. Um, and then, yeah, uh, you know, Vallejo is uh, a, besides being a working class city, is also a, a naval town. And so you have a lot of uh, uh, Filipino uh, immigrants who have a connection to the American military, whether they served directly or they were sponsored by someone who who had served and therefore was living in and around Vallejo. And so they ended up in those places. Um, I actually don't remember off the top, and maybe this is in the book about like why Fremont or Union City or like the Berryessa neighborhood in San Jose was another um, heavily Filipino American uh, place. Well, but yeah, go ahead. I mean, you do mention that in a lot of these places, what had happened was that there was a migration of white families out of those spaces. Oh, right, right. And it's white flight. property yeah. values were going down. Right. Um, for those of you who have never been to Daly City, you know, I, I think it's important. And you'd spend quite a bit of time in the book describing it, which I think is important, which is that it is a very particular place. You know, it's it's it looks like Pleasantville in some ways, where it's just like these brightly colored single track family houses. Yeah. One after another. All They're pretty much that. identical to one another. And then there are these big strip malls. And for people who are like, oh, the Bay Area is so interesting, San Francisco is so walkable. Like Daly City is it's not quite that, you know, it is no. suburban in its in its essence, but it is also very close to San Francisco oh, you yeah. know, to the yeah. point where it's like hard to even call it a suburb. You know, it feels like a small uh, it feels like almost like a small outcropping of it. And the last thing to say is that it's constantly covered in fog. Yes. Um, and it's cold, it's cold <laughs> as shit there. <laughs> I thought for a while about moving there because, you know, I when I was surfing a lot because it's very close to the beach. Yeah. And I was like, I just don't think I can handle the fog. Right. Um, but that that's sort of what Daly City is. It's a it's a middle class suburb, I think we can say. Yeah. It's a city that gave us the term tiki tacky, thanks to the Malvina is it Reynolds song, um, which Little Boxes, oh, yeah, which yeah, is yeah, talking about the houses, yeah, which, yeah. which is talking about all those, uh, you know, cookie cut houses that you can see along the hill when you're driving up. Uh, I think it's what is it? Two eighty. 580? Oh my God, I've, I have forgotten my various freeways. This is uh, terrible. The, the 280. There we go, the 280. Yeah. 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 I think. I don't know. I just like go in autopilot when I drive down there. That's <laughs> <laughs> well, one, way, um, one way to pass the time. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah. Because um, I, I used to drive around the beaches all the time, but you know, it's another story. Um, the, uh, the, the, so this, you have this class dimension, right? Why is it, why is it critical for these? for the people here to be like middle class like why because it seems like you're making this Im implicit argument in this piece in this book that um 
this was never going to come out of like the Manila town. You know, this was never going to come out of San Francisco's Chinatown. It had to necessarily be a sort of suburban middle class movement. Um, right. So, so why, why, why is that? There, I mean, there's a couple of reasons. The most obvious is simply that DJing equipment is really expensive. Um, and this is especially the case back in the 19, late 70s and early 80s when the scene first uh, takes off, because I mean, you're talking about the, the market for DJ equipment has now been maybe roughly about a decade old, but it's still expensive to buy turntables, amplifier speakers, and of course, records, vinyl records themselves. So it helps to have disposable income. Um, and then you also need a place to store this stuff. And I, as I write in the book, the garage becomes one of the most important spaces because not only is it a place where you can store all this equipment, but it also becomes a, a great place to throw a party in terms of the garage parties. Um, and so it helps to have access to kind of conventional, at least by California standards, suburban housing, which is going to have extra storage space. Um, but a lot of it really just comes back to the fact that it is, it's not, it's not cheap to become a DJ. And so you need to be able to pull resources and you need to be able to be able to borrow money from, and, and, and especially if we're talking about high school, you know, teenagers uh, who kick this off, it's not like they're earning a lot of money on their own. And so um, they're largely dependent on the, the means of their families to be able to um, afford the equipment, have places to put it. Um, you know, if, and the, the fact that you're a mobile DJ means you need to be able to move equipment and that means you need access to transportation, which means it yeah. also helps to have a middle-class family that has cars, pickup trucks, vans, et cetera, that can be used to be able to move equipment from place to place. You're not trying, I mean, I'm sure people have used buses to move speakers and amps and records. It's just not ideal as a way to be able to throw parties to take public transit. Yeah, you, you describe the scene where these kids are going down to Pacifica to go to this very famous music rental shop to, you know, and rent music. the stuff they need for a, for a, uh, and you know, there's no way to, there's no bus that goes down there. And then you take a bus all the way, maybe there is, but you know, you take right. a bus all the way back and then take a bus to the party. It seems impossible. And so, um, there, there are all these, it was interesting because I, I am very fascinated in how like very specific type of geographical and like almost like architectural things lead to these types of subcultures, which, you know, why your book is so interesting to me. One of the things that you focus on quite a bit is the garage, right? Yeah. Like that these people are moving from these SROs or they're moving from these apartment buildings in San Francisco's downtown area, which if you've been down there, they don't really have garage. They don't have garages. No. Nice. You don't have your own yeah. garage. Yeah. Then you move out to the suburbs, you move out to Daly City, and then you have this hole to put your car in you know right so and you 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 spent a lot of time on this like on the garage so tell what's what's the significance of the garage because i think it explains the inevitable question that people are thinking right now which is like okay well i understand why these people are in the suburbs but why did they get into djing well i mean the garage if you think about it is if you had to repurpose a space to throw a party a garage is and especially in california where because of fear of earthquakes, we don't really have basements. I mean, some places do, but by and large, basements are, are much more rare here than compared to the Midwest or back East. Um, and so without a basement, well, where else are you going to throw a party? Well, you could throw it inside the house, but then you got to move furniture around. Garage is kind of perfect. You just take the car out, you know, clean up a little bit and voila, you have this big open space that especially if the, if it's not too cold out, I mean, in the barrier, it never gets that cold. You open up the garage door. Now you have the driveway and the garage as being your, your dance floor effectively. Um, and it doesn't take much to just set up some speakers and a turntable set. And then voila, you have your, your DJ setup ready to go. Um, and garage parties were, were also from a, just a business point of view, it's the simplest gig that you can book. 
Um, you know, if you want to book a school dance or let alone someone's wedding, I mean, you're going to need referrals. You're going to need more of a reputation. But if you want to throw a garage party, well, anyone can throw a garage party. And so it was the entry point for all of these different DJ groups to be able to build a rep for themselves, to make themselves known within their neighborhood, and then hopefully level up to more lucrative gigs. But if the best that you can do is a bunch of garage parties, well, that's something that you can find in any given weekend. And you don't really need an excuse to throw one. And you just say, yeah, we're going to throw a garage party. Uh, what, what, why, why was it that, that this Filipino immigrant community got so into like DJing and dancing and music as opposed to, you know, any other pursuit that you could do with a little bit of, you know, like, why didn't they get into like surfing or Dungeons and dra Dragons or something? <laughs> so why I mean, was it, why was it so much DJing? I, I'm sure many did to all those things. Right. But yeah. I think with DJing in particular is that, you know, the, one of the things that a lot of my respondents pointed out is that um, in Filipino American families, you have parties for anything, any, you know, whatever the occasion, whatever the excuse is, could be graduation, it could be a birthday, it could be uh, a debut, which is like a, you know, equivalent of like a bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah type thing, right? Quinceaneras. So there's all these reasons for people to want to throw parties. And if you're going to throw a party, you have to have music. It, it just, it would be like anathema to have a party with no music. So in some ways, like that foundation was already set there, which is to say that you have all these kids growing up in the 1970s and 80s who anytime their family throws a party, which is often, there's going to be music there. And so that opportunity or that, that, commonality creates this opportunity for DJ crews to say, well, if you're going to have music anyways, why not hire us? And we'll create a more, you know, professional, more festive atmosphere by bringing our equipment through by, um, you know, being able to do this non, non uh, stop disco style of mixing, which is, you know, just is an endless stream of music. Um, and so they're really able to tap into kind of this pre-existing phenomenon of Filipino American parties. Um, you know, and for me, you know, I grew up as a Chinese American within a Chinese American community of sorts, but parties were never that common. I mean, relatively speaking, no, and, certainly, and music was not something that was expected at all. And as yeah, opposed yeah. to amongst my respondents, you know, the, like I said, the idea of having something like a birthday party with no music, what would be the, what would be the point of that? And so hmm. I think that's kind of part of the, you know, the cultural preconditions, if sure. you will. Yeah, that, that, that's what I wanted. Yeah, there. That just to say that there is some. It's not all just economic in this sense, right? Like there no, no. is a cultural precondition. Right. Like at Korean parties when I was growing up, the only music would be like they would sing three church hymns, you know, and then that would be it. Right. <laughs> and then the and then yeah. the and then the dads would talk and the moms would talk and the kids would go play right. Dungeons and Dragons or but, something like that. So yeah. um, no one, no one's doing the Running Man to those those hymns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's definitely no continuous music yeah. on. I can't even uh but yeah, that does, you know, I think that the centrality of music within like uh and and parties as well in terms of like Filipino culture certainly right. does does explain it. Uh does explain at least some of the um you know, some of the entrance to it. So like here here's a question that, you know, it's a little off topic, but I was curious about why didn't more of these why why DJing? Like why didn't they become why didn't more of these kids become rappers? Well, I mean, you, you, music, remember. you know, or like singers. Yeah. But I mean, when they started, well, I, I think a lot of them probably did, but you know, yeah. this, when this first jumps off and the first crew that I could find was sound explosion, which formed um, out of Balboa high school in San Francisco in 1979. 
And at that point, hip hop is still barely bubbling out of New York. And so the dominant music styles are not going to be hip hop because hip hop isn't really a national thing yet um, when these crews get started. And so um, I think in terms of from a performance point of view, that's that's partially to explain why you don't see them, um, you know, becoming rappers, at least not in that early generation. I think you fast forward 15 years and it's a very different story. Um, But DJing, I think it it syncs with the fact, like I was saying before, like these parties, they like having parties and they want music at those parties. And so having um, the ability to play different musical styles, uh, all these different records uh, becomes really appealing for those, those reasons. I mean, you do have though, I mean, there's definitely like a a tradition of, of Filipino American singers, uh, some of whom end up on labels by the 1990s started by people who used to run uh, mobile DJ crews. And so, uh, Spintronics, which was a Daily City crew. Uh, Corman Roke was uh, one of the uh, main uh, co-founders of that. And he ended up starting, and God, right off the top of my head, I'm not going to remember the name of the label, uh, but it's the label that initially signed Jocelyn Enriquez, who was a big Filipina, Pinay, Bay Area singer, freestyle singer, uh, dance uh, music maker, who eventually then got signed by Tommy Boy. And then you had Velocity Records, which was another label started by a former mobile DJ um, a personality that had Buffy, who was another big Filipina Pinay uh, freestyle artist. And so, I mean, you do have those elements, but DJing, the, the, let's put it a different way. The barrier to entry to become a successful DJ crew is much lower than the barrier to become a successful musical artist. That's, okay, well, yeah, yeah. I, that's what I was wondering. It's like, is there something about the anonymity, right, of DJing where, and sort of the almost like where it's not really about... It's just about the music that you put out, how well you can keep these beats going, mm-hmm. how well you can keep the party going, where like and I personal identity is not as, you know, and is not as sort of ingrained in, in your in the presentation in the way that it would be almost certainly for a singer or a rapper or anybody else that, you know, you're just kind of behind a table. Like, what is it? Was that part of the reason why do you think or do you think um or that had anything to do with it? No, I think it has more to do with if you're if you're an aspiring singer, you're trying to appeal to as many people as possible. Whereas uh, for an aspiring DJ group, if all you're doing is just throwing parties within your local community, you can still be considered successful in a way that like a singer or a rapper, um, if you're only performing in front of the people that you already know, that doesn't feel successful by the model of success that we've seen in pop music. So I think DJing, it's just a... It's, it was it was easier to become big in it uh, because you're not trying to cross over and be throwing parties for you know just kind of the mass mainstream audience. Uh, I think these days to be you know the DJ aspiration is like that, but in the in the 80s because DJ culture had not yet matured to the point that we we think of it now with these you know giant electronic music festivals and whatever else, um, you could be kind of a local star and a local hero, and that was fine. And I think people who were wanted to become aspiring recording artists, they're not gunning to be just big in, in daily city, right? They're, they're, they want to be, they want to get signed. They want to be big. They want to be like Sylvester. Um, if we're talking yeah. about like, you know, uh, Bay area, uh, dance music legends, they're not trying to be like queen of, of Fremont. We should, uh, at the end of the show, maybe I'll, uh, play some of these, you know, I was, I was hoping to play some of these. So maybe afterwards, Oliver, you can just send me some links and I'll put them at the end and people can sort of listen to them because oh, sure. I think it will help them um, get a grasp of it. Cause when I listened to it, you know um, it really did help with uh, you know, my understanding of it and the type of music. So Sylvester would be a great one for people to hear. Um, 
Okay, so like the the next development that happens, right? You have these kids, if you can imagine in your head, you have these kids throwing these garage parties and their friends come over, you know, everyone from 15 to whatever, 40 comes over for whatever reason. Maybe it's just their family. They have like their uncles having a birthday party and they bring their cousins over. Right. And some kid has got turntables DJing, right? How, How does this become like a crew? Right. Like how do, how do these become mobile DJ crews? Well, a lot of it has to do with from a just a logistical point of view, this stuff is heavy. And so you need people around to help move equipment, to help set it up. Um, so there's kind of a basic labor need. But really, the main reason is just, it's just an excuse to hang out with your friends. And so and I think partly it's because the first Filipino-American DJ of note, which um, was in the form of sound explosion, was already a group. And so when other people also at Balboa High School saw so these upperclassmen forming this group and throwing school dances and getting paid to do this stuff, they're like, well, shit, like we can posse up with our friends and, and do the same thing. And so you see the same idea kind of take root and, and, and expand uh, virally before we, I think, I'm sure the term even existed at the time. Um, and the crew format is both primarily social because it's an excuse to hang out with your friends. Um, and it, it also works well with like ideas around team building, whether you're talking about sports, you're talking about the military. And of course, a lot of these kids have backgrounds within their, their larger families with military backgrounds. So I think the idea of DJing being a collective activity um, is something that comes very naturally to them as opposed to these days, DJing tends to be more individualistic. And partly it's because the equipment has become miniaturized and small enough where you don't need a crew to throw a party. You can do that by yourself. It would have been much, much harder to do that especially as teenagers um, back in the 1970s or 80s. You needed a group around you just to help move stuff around. But again, mostly it's because it was just fun to do something with your 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 friends. Uh, so give us a timestamp here. Like when is this? When, when do these sort of, when do these DJ crews start forming and if, in yeah. a real way? You know, yeah. like when, when is it that like every high school has like four four of them and they wear jackets right. with the names on the back and stuff and like yeah uh, when does that start so really like the the big ramp up is going to be over the cross uh the early 1980s uh, through mid 80s um and that's when you start seeing the expansion in different high schools uh across the bay area you know i don't know if it's exponential like literally exponential but it's that same kind of explosive growth uh, is across it and that the scene manages to to last up up through roughly you know the mid late 90s it's not like there was a formal end to it but like a lot of cultural phenomena things just kind of go through phases and that's where it begins to die out um so there's there's you know i was very interested in how these kids thought about themselves in terms of identity and you, yeah. you spend you have a chapter about that and you know i think that there's like there's obviously cultural bleed over from their parents' generation where they're just like, okay, music is going to be central to anything that we do. These parties are going to be central to a lot of our social life. We're going to go to high schools together because we're an immigrant enclave. So we're going to go to like Balboa. We're going to go to high school in Daly City or whatever. I guess the kids from Daly City might go to Balboa at the time. But like, no, they would have been at Westmore, one of the other Westmore. Okay. Daly City high schools. But Balboa was sort of one of the central places where a lot of this comes out of, right? Yeah. Um, And they, but they also have like a very sort of blinkered version, like vision of their own identity. And I'm not saying that in a pejorative sense. I'm saying it in a sense in the same way that my own vision of identity was blinkered when I was in high school because I'm post-1965 immigrant, right? right. Um, and so you, you, write this, you write this passage where you talk to this guy from Sound Explosion. His name is Rafael Rostaro. Mm-hmm. And um, he says, he, you, you say that he at times simply rejected being labeled as Filipino at all especially by other Filipinos. 
And what he says to you is, quote, I hated the stereotypical Filipino asking another Filipino, are you Filipino? No, I'm a Californian. No matter what, I'm a Californian, <laughs> even if I'm Filipino-American. I don't know. For me, I just didn't like that. I'm just a San Francisco, no colors about it. And so, like, you know, like, I read this, like, I, I you know, like, if, if I was a kid, I think I might have said something similar to this, you know, but, like, when I read it now, my head popped. I was like, Californian, like, just say American at least, you know? <laughs> um, and that uh, there's another passage that you get into where you're talking to some of these guys and they're talking about, like, you know, how they would be ashamed of being at high school. And, you know, there are these fob kids, right? Like, for the Filipino fob kids who would speak Tagalog. And, you know, they're the American kids, the, ki the kids who would more sort of assimilated would speak English and that most of the mobile DJ crews were like among these assimilated kids and that they sort of hated the, the kids who were speaking Tagalog because they felt embarrassed by them. Right. Like, um, yeah, just talk about that, Alex. I found that to be really interesting that this mobile DJ culture came out of that group, right? Yeah. It's sort of like the assimilated middle class group. Right. And I think because when when I became a DJ, I was under the sway and influence of hip hop. And so identity and racial identity and ethnic identity politics were all over hip hop coming out of the 1990s. And so I just kind of I just assumed that in in interviewing these guys who were DJs generation before in the 80s, it would be similar. And one of the big surprises is that by and large, right, most of them did not think of DJing as being a Filipino American thing. So even though even they they're all Filipino, no, no, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, I would point that out to them. They're like, well, okay, sure. But it just was not something that we identified as being a Filipino <laughs> thing at all. Um, and I think part of, I think this is largely generational. Um, I think if they had come up, you know, a generation before and had been influenced by the, the Asian American movement, as you and I were talking about earlier, that would have been different. And those who came up a generation later, once hip hop had become like the dominant musical form and the, the politics of, of that genre and that, that, that music and culture, I think would have influenced them in a different direction. But they're basically right in between these things. And so there's not like a big wave of Filipino American, specifically Filipino American kind of like ethnic pride um, sweeping through the 80s generation. And so even though, yes, they recognize that this the scene was predominantly Filipino American, they just didn't really make a connection that or think of it as a Filipino thing, um, despite the kind of obvious um, overt evidence that, well, it certainly seems like it is. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, like, but it wasn't, dude, all, all but, you guys are Filipino. <laughs> right. But it wasn't part of the, it wasn't part of the identity. Yeah. Of the yeah. 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 Uh, it's it. Yeah. Cause like it, it does seem so generational, right? Because it seems like people who grew up around that period of time, no matter where they grew up, right? Like if they grew up outside of Boston, like you, or if they grew up like in North Carolina, like me, or if they grew up in Daly City, that if you're if you grew up in the 80s and you're Asian, it doesn't matter how many Asians that you grew up around, like your vision of identity is always sort of a negative one, right? Like you like not in terms of like you find it negative. It's that you will constantly try and negate the idea that the identity exists. And I was surprised to see it with these people because, uh, you know, like everybody that they like their entire crew is Filipino. You know, they're right. doing these amazing things by the 90s when like Kubert comes around and he becomes this huge star. You would think that it would be the locus of like some sort of like at least like kind of like half hearted ethnic pride or like, you know, like cultural pride. Right. But it seems like in the 80s and 90s, it just never was that right. Like like it was almost like a denialist thing. I think by the 90s, the shift happens. But I think in the 80s, though, I, I think that, it, yeah, it whether whether you would call it denialist or not, I, I don't know if I would use that that particular framing, but certainly it just wasn't it, it wasn't something that they that they self-identified with. Um, so it wasn't, and, and again, 
some of them, some of the respondents were very proud to be Filipino. So they, they had an identity that is, existed there. But I think to the point that you and I are talking about, they didn't think of the practice of being a mobile DJ uh, or forming these crews, even if the crews were entirely Filipino American, they didn't think of it as being something that was in an, a, 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 um, an expression of their ethnic identity. It wasn't, it wasn't tied up with being Filipino. Um, and one of the things that I, I write, because I, I think this is important to remember is that the relationship between cultural performance and practice and identity, we, I think we tend to think of culture as being a product of the identity, but really I think of it the other way around, um, which is that identity only gets created through what you perform in practice. And so in a lot of ways, what it meant to be Filipino, it's not so much that, that the Filipino American community gave rise to this community. I mean, that is the case, but I think it's also equally true that participation within this scene is what defined what being Filipino even meant um, in this era. Yeah, no, we're going to get to that. And we're going to speak because that that part, you know, that's sort of like the thing that I want to focus a lot on. But like just before we get there, yeah, um, I think we need to just answer one thing. And you started to answer it, but it's just like, you know, like these people when they're growing up, these DJs, right? Like uh, this generation of kids who come over post 1965, they maybe live in San Francisco until they're five years old and they live, move out to Daly City. Let's say that that's sort mm -hmm. of traditional or like a normal trajectory for them. They don't seem to have a very explicit connection with the homeland, right? In the same way that I think a lot of immigrants, you know, and especially Asian American immigrants around our age or older would understand, you know, like would would totally identify with, which is just like, I don't know shit about Korea, you know, like when I was, well, when I was growing up, you yeah, know, I, say, right. I don't know, I don't like, why would I care about Korea? Yeah, it seems like this. And I agree that kids now, they don't have that, you know, like they're super into whatever their homeland is, especially if they're Korean, right? Because, you know, there's so many cultural products and weird nationalism around it now, like diasporic nationalism. But like, uh, these, these, uh, these kids seem to be very ambivalent towards, you know, their their homeland and, and the Philippines, uh, at least from what they were telling you explicitly. Right. I, I don't you know, I don't know if I ever really got into specifically asking them about their thoughts or opinions about the Philippines specifically. Um, I, I was more interested in whether or not to the extent that they had an identity as being Filipino or Filipino American. And in particular, whether or not they saw DJing as being a Filipino cultural activity. So, uh, so I actually, I don't know what their opinion or what the relationship was like back towards the Philippines though. If I had to make an educated guess, I think it would be very similar to what the phenomenon that you're describing as, as for people like you and me of that generation, at least when we were teenagers, you know, I didn't really have a strong relationship to either China or Taiwan um, and a lot of my friends, I don't feel like did either. Um, and yeah. you know, that to me has, it's a combination of you know, transnational media wasn't re as readily accessible, but I think a lot of it is you're here, you're living here in the States. You're trying to carve out a place for you here, rather than thinking about the kind of this globalized relationship back, back to whatever, you know, <laughs> yeah, who has time to think about that stuff. Right. You know, you're just trying to not, you know, you're just trying to survive and not get beat up in the playground, yeah, you know, yeah. like, you're like <laughs> what the right. fuck are you going to think about all that other shit about? Right. Um, all right. So let's get to this point, which I find to be the provocative argument that you're making in the book. And it's one that, um, you know, I, I sort of, turn around in my head a lot and I want us to talk about, which is, you know, this idea that the the culture that you become, the immigrant culture you become is done through practice, right? And mm -hmm. for and that the interesting thing about Filipino 
American culture in the Bay Area is that a large part of it is tied up in these mobile DJ parties, right? And these competitions and these uh, these sort of displays, showcases that they do. Right. Um, yeah. Just just tell us a little bit about the, that argument that you're making. Yeah. So, I mean, by the time the scene matures, so we're talking like mid 80s at this point, is that this this new kind of party emerges, which is largely thrown by promoters. So rather than crews throwing their own parties, right, prom promoters are inviting crews and they do these big scale performances known as showcases where you're inviting multiple crews, usually from across the Bay Area to uh, to come, whether it's to compete formally in terms of a, a designated battle or if it's just kind of a, a showcase that doesn't have a battle aspect. It doesn't really matter because the point here is when you're inviting, let's say, one crew from Daly City and then one crew from Union City, Fremont, one crew from Vallejo, whatever, you're bringing in, right, you're tripling the potential of how many people will come to your party now, because you're not just getting people from one specific high school anymore. Now you're tapping into three or four different high schools. So it's actually from a promoter's point of view, it's a brilliant strategy to, to up your numbers. But one of the consequences of this is now you're drawing all of these different young people from different parts of the Bay Area. And if anyone who is familiar with the geography of the Bay, you know, Vallejo to Daly City to San Jose to Fremont, these are not next door um, cities at all. I mean, it takes time to go between these. And, um, you know, what, what in 19, let's say 77, so before the DJ scene exists, why would you ever go from Vallejo to San Jose? Like what, what would draw you to, to make that trip? Um, but the showcases, right, and the DJ scene as a whole, now this creates opportunities for people from different Filipino-American youth from all across the Bay Area to congregate in these different parties where they get to meet one another, where they get to form friendships in many cases that have lasted you know, well into their, their middle-aged adulthood now. And so for that reason, you know, I think the mobile scene for that particular generation helped to define what it meant to be Filipino-American, which is to say that, well, one of the defining features is that you participated, even if it was just going to these parties, that was enough. You didn't have to form a crew, but just being part of the scene was something that ties you. It creates a, a cultural link between you and every other Filipino-American that you ran into at these parties uh, over the course of like the 10 to 15 years the scene was around. It's like the early days of the Korean church, right? Or, um, and, but it's mostly for kids and it's like a, something that is sort of, it feels much more independent and has an agency outside of the church itself. Mm -hmm. Um, how many, how many people are going to these parties at, at the peak of it? Like, uh, I mean, I think thousands would be like a pretty good estimate because you figure in any given neighborhood, you're going to have, you know. Who knows how many that that could be popping off? I mean, it's not like anyone ever kept a registry of the total number of crews, and so I I could only make informal counts based on whatever resources were available. But you know, over the course of that history, easily there was at least over a hundred. Um, I don't know if there's more than two hundred, but that's a lot of different crews in a lot of different neighborhoods. And so uh, I can imagine that, like I said, in any given weekend it wouldn't be hard to imagine there would be at least a few thousand kids going to different parties, you know, around the area or at the very, very least, you know, a few hundred. Um, that sounds so fun. <laughs> it does. And, and as someone who moved to the Bay and was only aware of this after the scene was over, yeah. you know, it's like, damn, I, I really missed out. Like I never got to see this. I thing. know. And it's I go that high school instead of, you know, yeah. drinking, drinking forties in a park <laughs> with my friends and then walking home. Right. I mean, <laughs> at my, like two o'clock in the morning with like, you know, after talking about the same bullshit all the time. Yeah. <laughs> this is my high school year. It's miserable. Um, 
Yeah, it seems. Uh, so uh, let's get let's get to the music part of it. This is where we can nerd out a bit, because then the question yeah. is, all right, so we've set the stage, right? Like we understand, I think, why all these DJ crews are everywhere. We understand how big of a deal it was. We understand the sort of cultural and sociological function that they were performing at the time. Right? How do they turn into like uh, how do they go from these local people uh doing these parties and how do they go into becoming like the invisible scratch pickles and mix master Mike and people yeah. who are on a huge stage. I mean, mix, mix master Mike's probably for a while. It must've been full on celebrity, you know, like uh, anywhere that he went. So I'm yeah. sure still is right. Like I'm, I hope everyone listening to this knows who mix master Mike is at least, you know, yeah. even if you don't know who Cubert and the scratch pickles are. Um, so how does that happen? How do they go from local to sort of national celebrity? Yeah, so I mean, scratch DJing really begins to emerge nationally. I think what around maybe when was um, Herbie Hancock's rocket? That would have been either 1981, 1982. Yeah. And um, I mean, this is a very common story amongst uh, scratch DJs, like the world over, is that rocket, which had Grandmaster DST scratching on the song and the music video, and they were on SNL and this really well known um, performance is what introduces a lot of people to scratch DJing. So over the course of the, the 1980s, more and more people begin to be exposed to this. And of course, as hip hop, as a genre grows across the country, you're hearing people like DJ Jazzy Jeff scratching on records. You're hearing uh, people like uh, DJ Scratch and EPMD and whoever else. And so within the mobile scene, you have within any given crew, what emerges is like this maybe one or two people who yeah, they're fine. Like they like doing the school dances and they like throwing parties, but like they get turned on to scratch DJ and they're like, wow, like this is just artistically or competitively fascinating. And so people like the, the kind of the core uh, members who were behind what eventually became known as the pickles were Mike Apollo and Cubert. And they were all friends and had known each other in San Francisco and Daly city where they respectively grew up. Um, in the 1980s, and notably, all of them belonged to different mobile crews. So they didn't know each other because they were in the same crew. They knew each other from the scene as a whole, but they all came from different mobile crews. And the thing about scratching is that as stylistically cool and interesting as it may be, you're not going to want to bust that out during someone's wedding. Like that's just not scratching. Does yeah, not, it's, 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 it's more, not more fun. Like, yeah, it's more <laughs> yeah. like performance art. It's not something the that people dance to. For just for the listeners, just to be as clear as possible, right? The difference between scratch DJing and and mobile sort of the DJing that the mobile crews did. So the mobile crews would do beat matching and try and keep a keep a beat going the entire time so right. people can dance forever. And the scratch DJ is what you would mo mostly associate with, like the scratch pickles or. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's scratching. So yeah, yeah. Keep going. Yeah. yeah. And so they, they realize that they're more interested in, in, in learning more about um, scratching and developing styles and techniques there. And so they begin, they begin to find each other within the scene. And that's basically how this core of Apollo, Mike and Cubert eventually um, they migrate out of their mobile crews and just are practicing in you know, probably garages and bedrooms and just focusing on scratching and developing those styles. Um, and so by the time those three in particular emerge by um, the early 1990s, you know, they've had literally years to basically work in their own laboratory. They're not competing on a national level until Kubert enters into the DMC, the Disco Mix uh, competition, um, I think in 1991. And I know this, this, this term gets overused. Um, in, in sports talk, but he basically takes the world by storm and it just feels like he's out of nowhere because 
um, the Bay Area was never known as a hotbed of DJ hip hop DJ talent until Kubert emerges in 91. He wins the U.S. championship, which surprises everybody, um, and then comes in second at Worlds. Um, and then the world, the year after that, he returns with Mike and Apollo. They win Worlds. Mike, uh, Mike and Kubert defend the year uh, after that. And then they're asked to voluntarily retire by the DMC <laughs> uh, organizers because the feeling was they were too intimidating to the rest of the global competition. And so, I mean, this is part of the big legend behind them. But yeah, they were all mobile DJs who realized, like, I don't really want to do parties um, as much as I want to just focus on scratching and, and really sink my teeth into this. All right, so let's get yeah. let's get super yeah, yeah. nerdy here then let's sure. talk about the difference between you know metaphysically and spiritually between scratching and djing because you i think that this is something that you're very interested in from reading this book but you know maybe uh you can go into it much more length at in here because you have this wonderful scene in the book and you know i really appreciate it where you have uh this guy jazzy jim right and yeah. he's in he's uh he's up against cubert in this sort of showcase slash competition yeah and it is you you posit it as this changing of the guard because jazzy jim did a little bit of scratching but he is more about the continuous beat you know quick mixing uh yeah. quick mixing getting songs in and out making sure people dance and are excited you know crescendoing to the point where everybody and you can play something like under pressure or something like that everybody knows the song they go crazy you know maybe now it would be like i don't know cardi b or something like sure. that right yeah um and uh and then Qbert, who is doing all this sort of futuristic scratching stuff, and people don't really know what to make of it, right. you know, um, and that this is sort of the a pivotal scene in the in that the one guy is doing it for the party, right? Like he yeah. obviously has some ego. He has a lot of, but his, but he understands that at some point he gets paid and he gets adulation if the people at the party are having a good time. And on the other hand, you have this guy who is doing this shit that is actually not that pleasant to listen to, but it's just sort of impressive. You know? <laughs> and like, like the, it, it's like much nerdier in its core, right? Like, uh, it's like, all right, what can I do with this, with these two turntables and this fader? Yeah. Like, what noises can I make? What sort of juggling can I do back and forth with the scratching? And like, you know, you have to have such a high understanding of music, which is something you go into in the book to really appreciate every single thing that Qbert is doing during these types of things, right? And so it's, it's, it is in some ways a little more abstract. It is much more like of a sort of connoisseur type of thing. Um, why, why, did, why did DJing go in this direction? You know, because like, I'm not, I'm not convinced it was a good thing that everything became scratching, you know, even though I find it very impressive. But why, why do you think like so much of DJ culture became about scratching at that period of time? Because I think in a lot of ways, it was a, to the extent that even with mobile DJing performance, there's still, this is still about an expression of ego. And I mean this in a, in a, in a good way, like it's an expression of yeah. ego and attitude um, and skill, but you kind of have to share the stage literally and figuratively with everyone else in your crew. Whereas as a scratch DJ, it's just about you. Um, even though, yes, they formed into crews, but the performance of scratching itself, unlike a, a performance at a, at a party, um, the focus is really on you doing your routine in this set amount of time and trying to figure out how many things can I pack into, you know, three, five minutes of performance that are just going to blow people's minds because you've never seen anything like this before. And I, so I think if what's driving you is you want this platform for expression, you want this platform for performance, scratching is much more individualized in a way where you don't have to necessarily share the spotlight, um, which is different than sort of the, the model that the um, mobile DJ scene had, had, had created. Um, you know, in, 
hopefully I'm not getting too far ahead of things, but you know, one of the reasons why the mobile scene begins to die out is because clubs and bars begin to pluck off individual DJs. It's like, we don't want your crew. We just want you to come and spin our party. Yeah. And they're like, well, great. I, I get to, I don't have to split the check anymore. Like I get to take all of the money for this and just, I get to headline it by myself. So that also becomes, you know, part of the things that weakens the scene. But again, I think coming back to, to, to scratch DJing, it has to do with the fact that this is as a, as a, as an act of performance, you get to really be in the spotlight individually and that you're not, it's not like they don't want to share the, the, the spotlight. Cause again, they do form into crews as well, but I think that's, that's the core difference. Um, I'm trying to think of like what a musical analogy would be. It's sort of like the difference between playing in a band versus being, you know, Eddie Van Halen, just as a solo guitarist. Or like, or yeah. Like, like Joshua Bell or something like that. Like one of these virtuoso violinists who play the Brandenburg concerto uh, all over the world. And it's, you know, it's like a, the point of going to see them is to see a virtuosic performance as opposed to like wanting to go see Beethoven's, you know, fifth symphony or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, like, okay. So let's, let's, uh, can we talk about the rapper question then now? Like yeah. why, like this is something I want to talk about. Cause I, one of my interests is like sort of Asian rap, you know? Yeah. And, um, yeah, and it's something that we can talk about outside of the context of this book as well. But you know, like, why, why, why do you think that like there was not the same MC scene when this DJ scene became world famous? You know, like the Scratch Pickles, I'm sure, is still playing around the world, right? Like, maybe, maybe not, but like, I'd imagine that they they still can book shows everywhere. Sure. Um, Mix Master Mike is like a legend, you know. Like, yeah, um, that's his keyboard. Yeah, and Shortcut and all those guys. Keyboard. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. All these. Um, why why did the MC scene not sort of follow in that footstep? Well, I think for one big reason is that it's a lot more acceptable to audiences uh, and promoters to book uh, a DJ crew that doesn't look that that falls outside of their kind of expectations for um, the ethnicity or race of the performer as opposed to in hip hop. Um, and especially we're talking about like the 80s or, or even into the 90s, you know, the predominant image that we have of what a rapper is and who they look like is usually a black man um, yeah. or in some cases, right, maybe a black woman. But by and large, it's defined by sort of blackness um, and Filipinos or they don't they can't lay claim to that. And so I think there's just kind of this skepticism and this doesn't apply specifically just to Filipino DJs. I think it, it has applied and continues to apply to Asian American um, MCs of all different ethnic backgrounds is, is there's just a baseline of skepticism that audiences, let alone record executives or label managers, et cetera, have around seeing someone who doesn't fit into their idea of what a rapper looks like. So I think there were aspiring rappers within the scene, but they were never going to get the same kind of, they were never going to have the same viability from a professional point of view um, compared to um, the DJs because the DJs just had an easier time booking gigs, um, convincing people to sort of of their legitimacy in a way that I think rappers would have had a much more difficult time doing. Yeah, the Asian American rapper is like one of the most tragic figures to me, not in the sense that like I feel bad for them or I find them to be tragic, but there's just so many implicit or like, you know, there's so many limitations on that you just start out with, you know? Yeah. And then you try and do the best that you can, but like, you know, what are you going to do? Like, you know, it's, right. uh, I, I had a hard enough time understanding how someone would accept an Asian American writer, you know, much less like an Asian American right. rapper. Or, I mean, um, you look, you look at the experience of Jeremy Lin entering the NBA and just sort of people's, the, the cognitive dissonance that people experienced across the board within the basketball community in terms of, so this Chinese Taiwanese kid can ball like word, like really? 
Um, you know, in yeah. fact, I was I was thinking back. I think the first time you and I ex- like exchanged words was in the comments section, probably on the Free Darko site. Shout out to, to yeah. Nathaniel, <laughs> debating stuff around you know Asian American identity in oh, relation yeah, to yeah, yeah. in relation to insanity. Right. Yeah, well, because I was making this because okay, this is when Jeremy was still in college, so it was a long time ago. So it was before Lynn Sanity. Oh shit, was it? Yeah, yeah. It was oh, like wow, okay. it was like two thousand nine or something. Wow, okay, like that. okay. So Jeremy was still in college, and yeah, I made this argument Harvard, that right? yeah. <laughs> this argument about how uh, yeah, I was comparing him to uh, to Jin, right? Mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. the because Jin had done his Freestyle Friday thing. Right. Um, I, if, if we've lost all of our young listeners, I apologize. But Jin, Jin was this Chinese uh, American rapper who who won all these Freestyle Fridays, which was a BET show back in the Park. day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in my opinion, it was a bigger cultural moment than Lin Sanity, but I'm probably the only person who thinks that I would all die with that take. Yeah, that's... Um, but he won like, I think he won like six in a row and then retired. And he got a deal with Rough Riders, Rough Riders which yeah. was a huge deal big at deal. the time. Big, big um, deal, yeah. And uh, it was all based off him doing these sort of clever punchlines, you know, throwing it back on them. Um, you know, he the first one he did, you know, the first the first appearance he had where he like said he like sort of looks at this guy and says, if you make one joke about rice or karate, NYPD be in Chinatown looking for your body. Like That sort of stuff was like crazy to hear yeah. at the time, yeah. you know, and it was like uh, that was I don't know why we're talking about this, except that I'm excited, but to even think about it now, I just sort of making the argument that like uh, when when that there is a sort of tradition of Asians, you know, trying to climb like a black meritocracy. Right. And that um, there are these glimmers and that it gives us this sort of understanding that perhaps there is a there is a life outside of assimilation and going towards whiteness. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. um, and that Jeremy Lin and at Harvard, ironically enough, and Jin were like sort of that's why they're so popular because for Asian American dudes like myself and for women as well, you know, like anybody who's like my age or whatever, seeing though seeing Jin was like fucking mind blowing. You're just like, oh, we can actually do that. Like we don't have to just go to fucking, you know, study and play the violin and stuff like that and, and <laughs> go become a journalist or something. You know? Yeah. Live it live in Berkeley, California. Like, you know, there it was it was a it was a whole other pathway. And um I, I don't know. I find it interesting because I feel like that those that part of being Asian American is not changed at all. You know, like the language around it, everything like that. What's what's polite, what's not polite has changed. But there's still that sort of desire implicit around it. That's sort of something that was I was interested in your book about, which is just like what was the what was the relationship with these Filipino DJ crews and sort of like you know like the black culture around around San Francisco and the Bay Area. You know, like how how did they sort of you know, how did they interact with sort of the, the, the different scenes, you know, in Oakland and, and, and in Bayside or, you yeah. know, like, uh, right. I mean, I think in this, you know, this might be, you got to remember when I started interviewing a lot of these folks, uh, I think my primary interviews began around 2001 and especially all through 2002, um, is that, you know, they're now reminiscing on something that for them they had done, you know, 10, yeah. 15, 20 years ago in, in some cases. And so I think with the kind of the passage of time, they tend to look back on their their activities then with a certain bit of, of rose tint in their glasses, so to say. Because um, what they describe is a very, even though the scene itself is predominantly Filipino-American, it's that the kind of larger party scene is very inclusive. And so some of these crews do have black and white and Latino members. Um, so there's more crossover. They're doing parties together at some of these showcases. Um, it doesn't seem to be wildly competitive 
between sort of kind of racial or ethnic communities. I mean, there's it's fiercely competitive within like any any individual scene. So the Filipino scene specifically is super competitive, but it's not like they're talking about battling like white or black or Latino or Chinese American crews, all of which existed certainly at the same time. Um, uh, in, and depending on the neighborhood, some of them are growing up, especially those who at least started off um, as kids living in in um, different parts of of in San Francisco and, and closer in the central city. You know, they're living adjacently to, to to black families and households and whatnot. I think by the time they get out to the suburbs, this is where the forces of segregation begin to really apply more because these tend to sure, be much yeah. more, if yeah. not mono ethnic, they tend to be like dual ethnic. They're they're not yeah. particularly diverse spaces because. They're suburbs. There's there's a reason for that, right? Um, so uh, you know, they're they're relate. A lot of the music they're playing certainly is rooted in sort of black musical traditions, so funk and disco. Um, but you know, it, but they're also drawing from sort of kind of freestyle was kind of a dance style that I I was associate with with coming really more out of the out of the Latino community, um, and then like you know white. European new wave pop music and, and whatnot. So it's really kind of this big mix and melange. And then the occasional, like, cause I, I would ask them, like, did you play any like quote unquote, like Filipino music? And the closest that it comes to is they would play occasionally like um, cha-cha music for their parents, but that's, you know, cha-cha comes out of an <laughs> Afro-Cuban context, yeah, yeah. Um, even if it's been adopted, you know, within the Philippines. And so yeah. um, I'm sure those things would look different now because all of the music scenes globally have been, you know, have advanced and matured in different ways. But again, in the 1980s, like what you had at your disposal, especially if you're going to a place like Manor Music or the different record stores in San Francisco and, and throughout the Bay Area at, at the time, your dance records are going to be mainly from black, white, Latino, well, mostly black and white artists and then a little bit some Latino artists on the side. Yeah, it's interesting because it's like it's not like the idea of DJing a party is something that at the time probably was only associated with with black culture. Oh, right? not at all. No. Not and at all. so um it's not like in the same way, you know, how like, you know, how like b-boying and breakdancing has become like this global race war now. And you have like, uh, <laughs> right. it's like so right. bad with, you, with you your people like, killing it right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. It was the, uh, they, uh, yeah. Although, you know, there's the Korean stranglehold on, on breakdancing has loosened a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think before it was basically just like these guys would practice doing these power moves that nobody else could do. And it's like going to a dunk contest and being able to do like a like a front flip and dunk the ball like, you know, through your legs. You can do it over and over again, but until someone else can do that, you know, you're just going to win every dunk contest. And so um, but now the rest of the world is sort of caught up. But, you know, like within there, there's tension because you're just like, all right, well, you know, what is these people's connection to hip hop? And then you have a whole protracted conversation about it with DJing. It's not really like that. Um, and so, yeah, I can see why it wouldn't be sort of beside or like sort of, you know, and to, maybe it changes in the '90s when the conversation changed, but the late '70s and '80s, it couldn't. It, I can't imagine that that was really a big part of that conversation. Yeah, no, not really. And I think you know, partly, and again, this is kind of one of those those cliche comments, but music as being a universal language is that when you're playing music out, the goal here is not you're not really dwelling on who the performer is. You're dwelling on what is the affect of what's being played and how does that impact the dancers on the floor, um, and that's what takes precedence. Yeah. Um, last question about this before we move on to the other thing that I want to talk with you about, which is just like, are these, are these, what's, what's sort of the, what's the legacy of these crews? You know, like, um, obviously 
there's not people loading up fans in Daly City right now in the same way. But like, right. you know, like what, what's what's the imprint that it's left? Well, I mean, I think on a simple level, this idea that there are a lot of really good Filipino DJs out there, not just in the Bay Area, but across the world, um, is is has become a thing. Like it's a phenomenon that traces its roots partially to the emergence of these these Bay Area DJs um, from an earlier generation. Um, and, you know, what I dwell on is not so much as like, how have younger generations processed it, even though I do think it's an interesting question, but really I'm, I'm more interested in the people that I interviewed, like, what did it mean to them? And for them, you know, it was both a defining part of their <clears throat> youth, which is relevant. And it also has colored like they're well into adulthood because a lot of the friendships they made in this scene, you know, they met their spouses at these parties, uh, their best friends, you know, 20 years plus going on were people that they met in this scene. And to the extent, you know, even though I didn't grow up in it, having interviewed, interviewed these people and, and, you know, friended them on, on Facebook, I can see just in their daily social contact, how much their roots in this scene continue to kind of reverberate. And, you know, they're still, um, I mean, I haven't, checked up on this recently but like i don't know as recently as when the book came out people were still throwing kind of these uh, throwback parties where you now have these middle-aged you know 40 something maybe even 50 something djs playing the music that they played back um in the 1980s and inviting people to come out to like i don't know what sushi bars or some kind of upscale suburban space to to hang out and dance and 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 congregate and socialize with people that they grew up around so it's still very much part of the cultural experience and, and activity that, that both defined what their teen years were like, but like I said, even 20, 30 years later is still very much part of the social glue um, that holds them together in a lot of these same neighborhoods. Great. Yeah. That, you know, that I would go to one of those parties for my generation too. just play like Annie up and uh, <laughs> bone thugs. There you go. <laughs> Over, over. <laughs> See, this, this is this is a reminder that you're probably about like I think five years younger than me because those would not have been my touchdown. I, 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 like... I just turned forty. Oh, so, okay. All right. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, eight years then. Yeah. In that yeah. case, yeah. For me, it would have been like Tribe Called Quest, De La, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, that's when that's when I was in Soul middle school. Yeah. Yeah. So that was like ninety three. But it, I just remember Illmatic being a very big deal when I was like fifteen years old. But it had come out a few years before that. But. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, maybe I was just not ready for it or something like that. Um, yeah, but because Illmatic came out, what, 93, right? 94? 94. 94. Okay, yeah. so maybe it was when I was in high school because I would have been a freshman in high school at that point. Um, all right, so let's let's talk about the second thing. And we, we, we don't have to spend as much time on this because we're already at a hour and 15. But, you know, one of the things that we want to do on the show is we want to sort of fill in these little gaps of Asian American history and mm -hmm. talk about them. And... Uh, you know, we, I am very interested in sort of what publishing was like when you were when you're starting out. Right. Yeah. Because like there there in some ways, like um, there was like all these magazines that I used to see. Right. Like when I would um, go to New York City or something like that, like Yoke or, you know, like uh, a magazine. Right. or Asian Week, all these places that seem to be publications that focus on Asian none of those exist anymore in fact like I mean maybe they do but I don't I don't think that they do they exist I mean a doesn't yoke yoke was only around okay. for really a handful of years um yeah yeah and this is kind of pre-giant robot which I think marks kind of a departure point but yep. yeah right this, um, this is before that yeah but it's interesting to me because you know there are a lot of Asian writers now right like maybe more than there were back then mm -hmm. um but oh, almost uh, certainly yeah 
And, but most of them have to sort of take my path through, which is you go work for like big media corporations, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And you have to try and fit yourself in. You pick your spots and you say, all right, I'm going to, the stuff I'm interested in in terms of race and being Asian, I can do once a year, maybe. (laughs) Like, and um, I got to do other stuff in the other hand, but these places don't want more than one or two pieces about us a year you know yeah. it's just true and you know I, I honestly like who can blame them right there are a lot of people in the country so like uh the idea that they would endlessly write about asian, asian american identities it's a little bit weird but like um yeah back then there was a lot of sort of specific asian publications right so just just tell us about like when you were starting out as a journalist and you're talking about music uh writing about music when you're you know starting a lot of this stuff like what, so, what was it like? And yeah, I mean, tell the, us the years it was. Yeah. Well, keep in mind, I mean, I was rooted, I was based in the Bay Area. So I wasn't necessarily exposed to some of the publications that were coming out of New York, with the exception of A Magazine, um, because that was kind of the big one. Um, but I got my start writing, my very first like paid gigs came via Asian Week, which was a weekly uh, newspaper published out of San Francisco. So it was local to me, even though it was a national paper um, that was focused on sort of Asian American, you know, news, politics, um, et cetera, cultural stuff as well uh, in there. And I mean, the, so I would think the landscape was either you have like more of these newsy newspaper types and then magazines like a like yoke uh i think jade was a thing for like a minute there was an asian american women's magazine called audrey that was an offshoot of one of these like publishing families or whatnot um which i always kind of think of as being these very aspirational maybe quasi conde nast style magazines you know big and glossy um and really about presenting kind of asian americans through this kind of lens of a very particular post 80s 90s six model idea of, of what success and yeah. Um, maybe unspoken, but assimilation also um, was was uh, tied into. Um, and so, you know, you had opportunities to write about this stuff because, you know, the it was a much it was a much more robust print uh, industry before the bottom fell out, uh, you know, 10 years later down the road. Um, but I do think that the perspective I, and I wouldn't lump Asian Week into this because as a newspaper, its, it's priorities were, were different. But I do think like using just a or yoke as two examples, it's sort of about like representing us and making sure that we and the things that we're into, even if they're not like unique to us, we're making movies, but a lot of people make movies. We're making music. A lot of people make music, blah, blah, blah. It's just to say, Hey, we're here too. Right. And we're, we're successful, whatever that means in doing these things. It's like a profile of the mountain brothers or something like that. Right. Or, or, you know, or, or a young Margaret Cho who is, who is getting, um, you know, off, off her feet with the, her early ABC sitcom and stuff like that. And so, uh, you know, Russell Wong is an actor. So, you know, it was sort of like, who are the most famous people we could find who are not famous by mainstream American standards, but certainly famous by Asian American standards, which is a very low threshold. (laughs) Like the mountain brothers. <laughs> right. But like, well, we're going to put them on the cover. We're going to make sure they get a feature yeah. story because we want to make sure everyone realizes like we're here. And I think um, without dumbing things down too much, I do think the kind of general tagline to a lot of these publications is like we're here too. That, That's that, interesting. That was the idea so what was this? Like the early 90s, mid 90s? Uh, yeah, I'm talking. Well, my exposure to this would have been mid to late 90s. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm sure that they existed. I mean, obviously they existed before that, but I didn't start noticing until I started writing for these places, which wasn't until the mid late nineties. So the, the the sort of explicit politics are gone, right? Like so in the eight, in the early eighties, late seventies, 
you have like Gidra. Uh, yeah, you have Gidra in like the seventies, and then you have all the publications and sort of the art that comes around Vincent Chin in the eighties, right? Sure. And so those things are explicitly political. Um, but again, that's another generation. That's not our generation right. that comes post nineteen sixty five. Those are like people who have been here two or three generations. Like, uh, like was the was the stuff that was coming out mostly like around you know, Yoke or A or any of these uh, publications that were starting, was it, uh, was it mostly from from post-1965 people? Oh, yeah, I think overwhelmingly. I mean, I'm sure there were some other like older kind of more movement era folks who were involved, but by and large, I mean, in terms of the people who were running these things, in terms of the editors, publishers, and the writers were, I think, primarily drawn from uh, post-65. And I think more to your point, Jay, I think the perspective Perspective, right? The underlying set of ideas circulating were very much post-65. Um, and I wouldn't say even necessarily that touched extensively by kind of like a Asian American studies perspective, because a lot of people who are editors or writing for these places um, never had the opportunity to take those classes. And I know, I mean, this is something that you've certainly written about is kind of for better, for worse, right? The kind of influence of, of Asian American studies as a, as a discipline. I don't think you were really felt that at least not until you get more into the two thousands. Um, I mean, I'm probably, I mean, I'm not like the first generation to have taken Asian American studies classes because you, you can find those in the eighties and I didn't start college until the eighty uh, until the nineties. But I do think that like the perspective of the magazines were not necessarily driven by the same kinds of priorities within the academic side of it um, as it was more in terms of, again, we're here too, and we're successful in however you define that. Yeah. And it's like, so like for you, you go to Cal, right? And then you, you're take you take Asian studies, you take uh, classes from people who probably participated in third world liberation front, Mm -hmm. people who were the foundation of ethnic studies in the UC system whether at UCLA or Cal or SF State. And um, were the people who were st- that, that were trying to become writers at the time, were they from the same, did they have that same educational background at least as you? Because like, I'm not totally sold. I know that like people, I know that the sense, I, I don't, there's probably four people who care enough about this to even have a sense about it. The sense is that like, you know, this, the podcast or me specifically, I'm very skeptical about the efficacy of ethnic studies. I don't think that's necessarily true. You know, like I think that I just don't know what the end result has been. Right. But I do think it, of course, it's important for people to learn about the radical politics of the of the of the international hotel and help them reimagine a new type of politics for themselves. Like, I think it's it's I mean, it helped me. I know that much, you know, to to learn about that stuff. So um, but like, you know, it, it is interesting to me where you have like this first generation of people, which I would say that you're not quite you know, you're not quite no. that old, No, no, I'm not. <laughs> but you are of like the 1.5 generation, let's say of, of 1965. Right. Right. Um, of the new immigrants who are coming over and that um, you, that, that the cultural products that they create are exactly how you explained it. You know, they're not, they're not even sort of like radical in the term in, in terms of like trying to just imitate what had come before them. There does seem to be this explicit step away from that. Is that is that true? And then if it's true, like, wh- why do you think that happened? So just so I can, because you threw like a dozen ideas. Yeah, yeah, no, there's specifically, too many. Too yeah, many. No. yeah, yeah. So too we're cluttered. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah go ahead. So, no, no, no. Just, what specifically are you are you asking? Well, I'm just specifically asking, why do you think that like, like what, what was there actually like, was, was that a real departure? Like, is the thing that I was imagining real? Like, it was there... Like, did it sort of, had it departed from even the Vincent Chin era of Asian American 
um, politics and sort of the, you know, like the reverence towards somebody like Grace Lee Boggs or something like that. Right. Um, when I was like 13, 14, 15 years old, and I started thinking about these things and picking up these magazines, sometimes you get at Barnes and Noble, even something like that. You read it and you're just like, I don't, I, this world is unrecognizable to me. You know, like I don't understand what this sort of glamorous Asian world is that they're describing. Well, I mean, to be honest, neither did I, even though I was writing for a lot of these places, mostly yeah. because it, at the time, you know, it's as a, as a young writer, you're just trying to, you're just trying to lock down any byline opportunity that you for can sure. find. Yep. But I think long before I, I identified in any way, even though I got my start partly through places like Asian week and, and writing for, uh, you know, so-called ethnic press, um, I was primarily interested in writing about music and, and, and especially back in the nineties and early OOs specifically about hip hop. And so I, I identified much more strongly with being like a hip hop writer, or a rap critic than I did as an Asian American writer. Um, not that one can like leave one thing behind, but the people that I was looking up to and were, and were really influential into the ways that I thought about writing were people like Jeff Chang, who, you know, I've mentioned this many times over was the, you know, the most important role model I had and kind of in the same way that if I can just kind of cycle back to the, some of the things I talk about in the book, you know, the major way that Filipino American kids thought about becoming DJs is because they saw somebody else who looked like them that went to their high schools do it. And was like, well, yeah. shit, if they can do it, we can do it too. That's a very basic idea. It is an incredibly profoundly powerful idea. It's simply realizing what's possible because you've seen someone else who has your background doing it. And when I first met Jeff, he had graduated from Cal. We didn't overlap at the time, but he had gone to Cal. He had been in, he had done college radio, which is what I had been getting into. And he was, you know, already a, an accomplished hip hop writer, which I was being, or actually I hadn't even thought about it until I met Jeff and realized, well, shit, if Jeff as this Chinese American can write about hip hop, then that means... I can too. And then later on, by the by later on the 80s, uh, sorry, later on the 90s, I learned about people like Jeff Mao at Ego Trip magazine. Um, and then just the network of other Asian American rap writers out there. So like shout out to like Serena Kim, uh, or I didn't really know that Miss Info was writing stuff for the source now, but in hindsight, I must have been reading her stuff because even though she was writing under a, a pseudonym at the time. And so as someone who was interested specifically in writing about hip hop, I was paying a lot of attention to other Asian Americans who were doing this. Whereas, sorry, this is very long winded. No, no, no. I've, and so, I'm totally fascinated. Please keep going. Yeah, yeah. So my entry point into writing did not come through writing for like the San Francisco Chronicle, which is like the, you know, the paper of record in the city. It wasn't writing for like glossy magazines that were outside of the world of like A and Yoke and, and whatnot. Whereas when I began meeting people who were involved in, in AAJA, which is the Asian American Journalists Association, I initially thought that we would have a lot in common because I'm Asian American and a journalist, you're Asian American and a journalist. And then I really quickly understood like your the sphere of journalism that you're involved with has very little to do with the sphere that I'm involved with because you all are, and again, I'm not trying to like bifurcate this, but like they were writing for mainstream newspapers and magazines and weren't necessarily writing about like Asian American things. They just happen to be of Asian American background, but their writing, their stories could be across the map. Whereas for me, the two things I was interested in writing about was either stuff specifically dealing with Asian American culture or dealing with hip hop that had nothing to do with Asian Americans. Yeah. But those are like my two main lanes. And I realized there's a whole kind of publication universe and journalism universe that existed that was you know, not separate exactly, but wasn't overlapping with where my interests were. And so, um, you know, the, I, I, I don't, 
I don't feel qualified at all to speak to sort of the world of Asian American journalism in that era because there was this whole other community and body of journalists as represented oh, sure. you know, by AJA. I, I, that- I think it's important. Let's split those then because, you know, the thing that you are into is more interesting to me. I agree. AJA, like, I'm not going to say anything bad about them, but, you know, um, it is, uh, you know, it, it's what all AAJA type things are. It's like a career networking thing and it's a way for people to, you know, get new jobs and right and sort of market themselves, which is all very important, especially in a right. industry where it's you know kind of hard to make it if you're you know yeah Asian. it's pro- it's so, about professional um, development right right um, but you know like this the cultural part of it is much more interesting because you know you have this moment where you have these magazines then you have a lot you have people like Jeff and I think Jeff you know I'm sure Jeff will never admit to this because he seems to be a very humble and decent person and, and a very cool guy. Yeah. But like, you know, like he's hugely influential, you know, even for me, it just saying like, holy shit, who's this guy writing about rap? You know, was, yeah. because rap was the only thing I was interested in when I was like in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Even though I, on Twitter, I try and make jokes about how like I was into other types of music, but really it's just rap, you know, still. Um, and so we, uh, yeah, I like, how, how do you navigate that? Because like, um, and when do the two converge and when do they not converge? Because I do think there are moments of convergence, right? Because like you are, you're, it's not like you're a white person trying to do this, right? You're a, you're an Asian person writing about hip hop, um, at this point where all these cultural ideas are still not fully formed. They're still very much in flux in the, in the nineties, I think. And, um, and especially in the late nineties, I think it becomes even more complicated. And then you have sort of the downturn of these Asian American, publications where right. you know they start to die out and um yeah just tell us about that time well i mean i think kind of to start backwards a lot of it is you can have you can be finance fiscally solvent if you are let's say um creating magazines to be read by let's say the black community right because they're just a lot i mean especially at the time demographically they had the numbers Asian American is different. And this is sort of one of the fundamental limitations of Asian American as an identity, which is that the amount of people who actually identify as Asian American is even is much smaller than just the general like census count of Asians, uh, people of Asian descent living in America. Right. And so a magazine like a, even if they're following in some direct or indirect ways in the, in the footsteps of like an Ebony or jet magazine, they're not circulating anywhere near the numbers because it's a harder sell. If you know someone like my parents are not going to pick up a magazine, like that's just right. <laughs> no. That this, that doesn't map onto them uh, yeah. their identity or what they're interested in at all. And so the kind of um, I think you know a lot of magazines were hoping to be able to develop that kind of audience, um, but you know it's difficult because you're talking about a very numerically small. Um, group of people. I think the more successful models might have been something like a Korea Am magazine, which, I mean, has had its ups and downs, but like has managed to exist in some form or other, even though it's under a completely different name now, but has, you know, they managed to linger around for like 20 plus years. Um, uh, you know, I've known two different editor, editor in chiefs there. And it's like, it's because I think theirs is more targeted in terms of at the time we're here for the Korean American community. Well, that's yeah easier to define but like what exactly is the asian american identity i mean these are the oldest questions within like asian right. American studies and in general for them like for a or for yoke the idea even though they wouldn't have said it explicitly it's basically like you know young professionals who right. grew yes. up in a, and went to like cal or went to harvard or right something these are like middle that. class yeah. these are well-educated you know yeah. they, they have disposable income right like i said it's it, to me it's very conde nast in terms of the prospective audience it just happens to be very asian 
Asian American, I should say. Um, um, yeah. It's like, and, and the last part about that is like, there's also like a dearth of politics within that group outside. It's more, much more about lifestyle. Right. That might actually also reflect a dearth of politics within the people who would read that type of magazine. That's my hot take, Oliver. No, no I mean, <laughs> no, I think, I think that sounds about right. I mean, I think yeah. you might've seen at best, like there would have been a column sized article about a sidebar column about like some, someone running for public office someplace. But, um, I don't think you saw the same kind of like, I mean, you didn't see a ton of like movement politics reflected and you were, you mentioned this earlier. I don't think you necessarily even saw like a lot of post, um, uh, oh God, I was about to say, I was about to say Frank Chin, that's, that'd be movement. You didn't see like a lot of like post Vincent Chin politics yeah. being written about in here. And so, yeah, maybe that's partly generational. Maybe that's post partly. Frank Chin right. Um, you know, <laughs> well, maybe, that's happening now. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Frank yeah, Chin I, has never been more popular than he is right now. <laughs> is that true? Really. Yeah, you, you might be yeah, better tied he, into this than I am. Yeah, so. I mean, he is. Yeah, there's making a, lot a comeback. Reading, All right, Frank. a lot of people reading Frank Chin and 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 relative quiet. I'll just put it that way. But right. Yeah. Go um, finish with that. I'm sorry. Oh no, no, no. I mean, it's I, 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 I'm basically agreeing with your point that I think the politics of it. And again, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush here because it wasn't like I was religiously reading cover to cover every episode of A that I got in. But like it, at least with Yoke and some of the other magazines that got started then. Um, yeah, it wasn't super deep into politics. I think that doesn't happen until a few years later when something like a hyphen kicks off. Um, you know, and there are other magazines that emerge by like the OOs that I think have more of a political bent. Um, but the, the kind of the magazines that, that come out of the nineties to me were much more lifestyle, as you were saying, much more kind yeah. of aspirational in perspective. Um, I think Asian week tended to cover more politics, partly because it's a newspaper, but also because it was run by this kind of very powerful Chinatown political family, the Fangs. And so they, um, who are, I think, actually pretty big, like Republican boosters at the time, if I'm not mistaken. I'm but in any sure. case, you yeah. would see a little bit more kind of political content there, simply given the, the difference between like a newspaper and a magazine. Uh, last question, then, you know, and this is something that I'm, I'm very curious about your perspective on, which is that with kids today, you know, um, even if they grew up in post-1965 families like like we did, they are very political. And they there's no there are very few, I, I think, people who would you know, basically just be like, I'm just an American, you know, in the way that Andrew Yang tried to do, right, which was very telling of his age and generation, and just be like, well, I'm not interested in these politics at all. I just want to, like, have a nice family with a nice house and move into a white suburb. Like, it seems like even if they end up doing that, like, they won't express it in that sort of way. Um, yeah, like, what what do you think happens with, with your know, publishing and writing now in terms of Asian Americans? Like, is there going to be, like, a new you know, are there going to be a bunch of new things that come out that are expressively political, like maybe leftist, maybe right wing? Like, where, where do you see it going? Because like for me, and I'll just tell you my priors before you respond. It's just yeah. like, it seems like the A Magazine stuff and the, all that sort of stuff went into Hollywood, right? Like mm -hmm. it sort of became became mm -hmm. part of the representation in Hollywood push and you know, getting mad at Scarlett Johansson and stuff like that <laughs> right, and making sure. sure that like uh, there's that Asian cartoon comic book characters didn't turn into white actors and stuff like that. I find that stuff to be mildly important, but generally not important, you know, and very, very, very sort of like assimilationist capitalist politics. Like, um, but I think the young people are not so interested in that sort of stuff. I don't think. And, you know, like wh where do you see it going from here? You know, both as like a sociologist who studies this stuff and, you know, somebody who has had all this experience in writing and, 
in journalism. I mean, really, I think the, the, none of those things are really that applicable here because it's not something that I actually really actively study very much. Uh, I spent a lot of my time, both as a writer and as a scholar, really focused on things in, in generations past where I wasn't necessarily even alive at the point. Um, I think you, my, do, you, you have like a kid and you have well, students. See, yeah, right? see, I think my yeah. perspective is more shaped by what I see with my with like my daughter and her generation. So she's she's like going to be 15 in, in February or 16, I should say in February. And so like, you know, she definitely comes out of like kind of the woke generation. Right. And so the, like the, the level of political sophistication in just their dialogue and vocabulary um, is so, so far more advanced than I was at her age in the era, yeah. you know, when I was a teenager. And so, um, I don't, I'm not a great prognosticator, but I can't imagine that the kind of energies that have been whipped up um, you know, partly maybe in, certainly in response to, I think, the political climate of the United States, uh, you know, over the last four plus years, that's likely going to translate, I think, in really interesting ways. I think the bigger question, though, is like, what are the venues going to be? Right. You know, and we, we're, yeah. we're still now close to close to 20 years deep into sort of the death of like journalism as we used to think of it, at least the models of it. Right. The, the uh, infrastructure around it. So, you know. It, is TikTok going to be like, is the revolution going to be televised on TikTok? Is that, is that how it's going to uh, go down? It's going to it be. It feels a, like it I now, right? It. For Asians, especially because like so Asian, it's feels like uh, early YouTube with like Kev Jumba, yeah. Ryan Higa, where it's like, it seems to be a congregating space for young Asian people. Right. Um, and uh, much more so than let's say like podcasts about, you know, where we talk for an hour and 40 minutes about <laughs> now, my, my kid hates podcasting, which is, <laughs> I feel like this is her form of like rebellion because it's like, yeah, your dad only tapes one every week, but you hate listening to them. So great. Yeah. That's just awesome. It seems like it'll be TikTok. I mean, and you know, it'll be interesting to see because like the stuff I don't, do you watch any of that stuff? I watch a lot of it and I find it to be totally baffling. You know, I don't understand their politics. Um, right. You know, it, they, I mean, they're young people. So obviously their politics are not going to be the most fully sure. formed. But it's like this mixture of like kind of like, you know, like of representation stuff and then just like radical stuff, you know. Um, and then also like uh, a lot of them are dealing with, uh, you know, being mixed race, um, which, of course, a lot of them are at this point. So, yeah, um, yeah I find it to be really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I wish I had a better answer to your question. But no, no, your answer yeah. is good. I don't know either. Yeah, know? but I, I'm maybe at, at the risk of sounding naive, like I feel very hopeful that they will be able to navigate this and create things that we could not have imagined given the limitations that we had of the era. Um, in you know, the internet, it, it giveth, it taketh away. But I do think that the, the fact that you have all these avenues for expression, whether it be creative, cultural, or political, um, it's just there's just many more avenues for people to pursue and to explore um, compared to like the kind of narrow options that we had, or at least I had as, as like a, a 70s baby uh, who came of age in the 80s and 90s. And so, um, you know, again, how is that going to translate into sort of like the world of journalism and of writing? Um, I don't know, but I, I, I don't have reason to be despairing about it. I, I do think that that there's like amazing opportunities and we're, we're, we're going to be living through this over the next, you know, X amount oh, yeah. of years. For sure. Me too. I think the big, th the only prediction I have is that a log large part of this will be right wing. You know, it won't be, it won't all be progressive that there'll be like a massive Asian right wing media that's going to come out. Um, yeah. And 
uh, and that sort of happened in the eighties, right? Like, or as at least according to the books I've read <laughs> since I don't right. remember, but it seems like neoconservatism, especially at on campuses like UCLA and in Cal had a big following amongst, uh, Asian Americans and, you know, a lot of people to some extent who came out. Yeah, you know? I think to some extent, but I do think, I mean, it's funny because looking back, those politics now seem very centrist in a way that I don't, I don't think we, <laughs> we thought of as at the time, but compared yeah. to like the polarization now, it yeah. feels actually much more mild and centrist. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I have not run into like a ton. And again, I, my exposure is really limited to like my kid and her friends, but like most of them don't seem to be particularly radicalized in a, in a right wing way. Um, if anything, they're going to be pretty left leaning um, or very kind of noncommittal in the center someplace. But um, but you might certainly be right. I mean, it's, you know. I, oh, yeah. I don't think it would be like your daughter and her friends. I just think, you know, maybe the, the, kids who are really right. mad about not getting to Harvard and stuff like that or. You know, the, some of the political action around probably 16 now or something like that. Right. right. I just voted on it. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, that, that uh, you know, I think it'll create a new type of intellectual figure within Asian Americans that will map on very well to like the post-Trump right. Hopefully post-Trump right. Right. We'll know in four hours. Well, um, all right. So we've got an hour forty. You, you. I, I promised Wa that no one would break his record for the longest podcast. So we, we have to stop right now. That's, but um, it works for me. <laughs> um, hey, thanks for coming on. And this is like totally fascinating to me. I loved your book, yeah, and you, everyone man. should go out to buy it. It's a Legion of Boom. Um, legions, you, legions, of legions of Boom. And um, it goes into all the things that we discussed in much more depth. And, you know, the writing in it is great. There are all these scenes that, you know, really make you feel like you're there. And that's really a big part of what, you know, that's part of why I enjoyed the book, Oliver. It's just like, uh, you know, these parties sound fucking awesome. Yeah, the they core do. Of it. They really did. <laughs> you know? They really, really you want did. To, you want to know how they feel yeah. being there. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there's large parts of the book where you're just like holy shit you know if you know i can picture it so it's it was it was cool um all right man uh i'm uh we will talk to you soon Sounds um good. thank you for listening to the show if you want to get in touch with us please it's at ttsg pod on twitter or time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com uh we are getting all your emails we're going to read much more of them this week uh or next week i guess because we're going to post this a little bit later um but yeah, thanks for listening. Bye.